Welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast with Ruth Haley Barton. In this season of the podcast, Ruth invites leaders with diverse callings and expertise to dialogue and explore how spiritual transformation intersects with some of the most significant topics of our time. Hello, friends of the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I am really excited about these conversations. I'm enjoying talking to my friends about important aspects of spiritual transformation. And today I am very excited to talk about the topic of spiritual transformation and psychology. And today we'll be talking about the integration of psychology and spirituality in our journey towards wholeness in Christ. And I have as my guest today my friend, Dr. Bob Watson. And Bob is a licensed clinical therapist. He's also someone who works with pastors and missionaries and other kinds of Christian leaders as they seek to be healthy and whole in their ministries. And Bob is also taught among us here in the Transforming Community Experience. And so I'm just thrilled that we get to have a conversation today about integrating psychology and spirituality into our journey of spiritual transformation. So the integration, well, welcome, Bob. I'll just say welcome to you. So glad you're with me today on this conversation. And in my own life, when I was in ministry and had sort of hit a wall in ministry, someone who noticed what I was going through suggested a spiritual director for me, but this spiritual director was also a psychologist. And so when I first went to her, we did work on the psychological level, and I found it to be very, very helpful. And then eventually, she changed up our conversation just a little bit and asked me if I thought we could shift our conversation to spiritual direction, which was great. But what I really appreciated about her was the fact that we would still toggle back and forth at times, and she would be very clear with me, we're doing spiritual direction right now, or this is heading more towards the therapeutic side of things. Um, And so in my own deeper spiritual journey, there was always this strong integration of psychology and spirituality um, in, in my spiritual direction relationship. And then when I did my own training as a spiritual director, I chose the Shalaman's Institute, specifically because Dr. Gerald May, who is a psychiatrist, MD, who has done huge integrative work in psychology, spirituality, and the contemplative life, I chose the program specifically because I wanted to continue my own learning in this integration of psychology and spirituality in the spiritual journey. And then, of course, when we founded the Transforming Center 17 years ago, this integration of psychology and spirituality has always been a big part of what we do, and it's a real distinctive in our uh, work in spirituality. And we'll talk a little bit more about that specifically as we go. But that is briefly my own journey of experiencing spiritual formation and psychology uh, as an integrated whole in my own spiritual journey. Bob, what about you as you join us today? Um, What about your integration of psychology and spirituality? What does that look like in your life? What's it been like for you? Uh, Well, thanks, first of all, Ruth, for asking me to be a part of this. Uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. As a college student, uh, trying to figure out a sense of calling and profession, I was drawn to psychology for the reasons that a lot of people are drawn to psychology is that they've got wounds. And uh, I I received mine um, the way that most people do in the context of family and genetics and uh, the, you know, encountering the brokenness of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also in college, I got very involved in campus ministry and felt a strong sense of 
called to be involved in ministry. So really, that the the draw to psychology and the draw to ministry were um, very, very strong from the beginning for me. And actually, I really thought that I would end up uh, being a cross-cultural worker, mm-hmm. being a missionary. And uh, it was actually some experiences of working with high school students in a cross-cultural context, doing evangelism and discipleship, that the call to pursue uh, professional psychology became clear to me. And what happened was, essentially, we were working with kids that had their own kind of wounds. And and actually, I I identified with them. Um, They had, uh, because of the culture and the families that they grew up in, had a very difficult time being able to, to, to allow us to minister to them in pastoral ways. Um, So I I recognized early on that the psychological damage that was done was an obstacle to me being able to be effective with them. And so that really lit a fire in me to, um, to get the tools, to develop the skills, to be able to help people to navigate the emotional damage so that they can even open themselves up to Uh, a relationship with a loving God. Yet I think that's just fascinating because what you're saying is that it wouldn't have mattered at all how effective you were as an evangelist or as a minister, that if they had these obstacles in place that were psychological in nature, they couldn't even receive what you were offering. That's exactly right, Ruth. And and like you, in terms of your professional training, I was drawn to uh, an integration program, meaning the integration taking very seriously the integration of Christianity, Christian worldview, theology, and professional psychology, and putting them together at Wheaton College. And also, that was a particular program at that time that was uh, quite good at helping people who had a cross-cultural perspective and wanted to be effective cross-culturally. And that really launched me as a, um, as a, a graduate student, and then I became a licensed psychologist and have worked in um, many different contexts, um, from psychiatric hospitals to um, helping to train uh, Christian psychologists to um, these days working quite um, quite extensively with people in ministry in my role as clinical director at alongside and in my own practice, as you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing that seems true to me is that a lot of times people who are in Christian ministry, they would rather over-spiritualize things and make everything about spirituality precisely to avoid having to do the psychological work. And that's something I've witnessed as well among leaders, is that they'd mm-hmm. like to over-spiritualize everything and make it a spiritual issue. If I just had more faith, if you know, if I could just be more victorious, if I could just work a little bit harder. And uh, if we can over-spiritualize things, then maybe we could avoid the hard psychological work of facing our lives and facing our past and facing real brokenness. And when leaders avoid and refuse to work at the psychological level as well as the spiritual level, my experience is that they can become very dangerous because they really are out of touch with what's really going on inside and what's really driving their negative behaviors. And so to me, it's a very serious topic that we're talking about here today that that we as Christian leaders, as part of our self-responsibility, as part of our self-leadership, that we are willing to look at not just the spiritual aspects of our lives, like scripture and prayer and solitude and silence and all that, but as part of our spirituality and our journey towards wholeness, we're also willing to to work psychologically as well on ourselves. Um, And then, of course, in ministry, we don't take so much on ourselves that we always believe it's about us when someone can't receive what we're giving. Sometimes it's about Mm -hmm. the brokenness that, that they've got going on in their own 
own lives, and that's one reason why they can't receive. So there's all sorts of reasons why this is important for people who are in Christian ministry and in Christian leadership. So um, I so appreciate your work, and, and I think what's fun about our conversations is that I'm often coming at it from you know the trained spiritual director point of view and you're coming at the same conversation from the licensed clinical psychologist point of view and there's this huge wonderful complicated beautiful place in the middle where we get to have our conversations and i find it to be extremely energizing well i i want to offer up a quote from our teacher bob mulholland and then let that be a jumping off point for our work in and our conversation on integration in his book invitation to a journey he talks about the fact that not only is psychology Psychology not a substitute for spirituality, but spirituality is not a substitute for psychology. And that psychological brokenness needs treatment in the same way that a broken bone needs to be set and healed. And there's an expertise, there's a discipline around that, and that while physical therapy can be integral and essential, that first of all, the bone has to be set right in order to enable the bone to heal properly. And he says that spiritual formation is an integral and essential part of recovery of human wholeness from psychological brokenness, but spiritual formation alone will never bring full and complete wholeness of being. Wow. Bob, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I, I feel like that that quote captures uh in a, in a real way, my experience of myself as a human being, as a broken person who wants to grow up and become a mature Christ follower. But I have seen that the, the, what Mulholland is underscoring in the quote that you gave, I've seen that happen over and over and over again with people in ministry. The, um, the confusion and the conflation of those two things, when it's actually quite helpful to separate them out and look at them as, as um, very, much in, very much related to each other, but, uh, but separate domains that require separate levels of expertise. Right. So there's this danger of slapping a spiritual answer onto a, onto a place of psychological brokenness, and then there's also the danger of trying to, to, to talk about psychology when it's really a spiritual dynamic that's going on. And if you don't know how to pull those two things apart and see them as being distinct, then you could actually make mistakes. A spiritual director could make mistakes, a psychologist could make mistakes if they don't fully understand how those two, two things are separate and yet connected and know which thing you're, which, which arena you're working in at any given time. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And I've seen firsthand the mistakes that you're alluding to and the consequences in people's lives. Right, right. Why don't you give us an example of how you've seen, you've seen mistakes get made when those two things aren't seen as being distinct but connected? What comes to your mind when you say that? Oh boy. Um, well, maybe let, let me. I like it. I can throw something at you because I mean, here's something that you and I have actually worked together in in the Transforming Center. So, our third retreat in our nine retreat series is on prayer, and of course, that's a topic that many pastors and leaders have taught about and worked on and preached sermons about. And we like to think that we're really good at prayer. But one of the things that we've noticed as we've taught about prayer among Christian leaders, is that there are psychological dynamics at work that are that can actually prevent the intimacy with God that we seek. And that places of psychological brokenness having to do with family of origin, which um, 
you know, as you mentioned, is a place where, you know, a lot of our brokenness begins, that especially what we would call attachment theory, um, the experiences that we've had with attaching or not attaching in our human relationship can actually have a, a, a huge impact on our ability to be intimate with God. And so we've actually invited you to come in and teach on a th- attachment theory as it has to do with the life of prayer. So talk to us a little bit about how you experience attachment or non-attachment as being significant as we seek to cultivate a a prayer life. Absolutely. And that's been such a joy, Ruth, to be able to interact with people that are part of the the, uh, Transforming Center and those communities around this um, really central topic of of attachment so attachment theory very briefly if 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 who uh, if one isn't familiar with it is uh, one of the most well-researched probably arguably the the most well-researched way of thinking about the psychological development of human beings over the past um, 50 years and um and essentially attachment theory focuses on this that in the interaction between um, primary caregivers, let's say a parent and a child, a mother and a baby, the, the interactions that, that occur over time um, form patterns uh, between the, those two human beings, mother and child, but also over time patterns within the child of expectations about relationships. And it really, that they really kind of boil down to two questions that every human being asks um, both, both in childhood, but really throughout their lives. All of us ask these questions that are essentially related to the question of attachment. And that is the question, do you love me? Meaning, uh, or questions related to that. Do you care about me? Am I lovable? Um, Am I good? Do you want to be close to me? All of those kinds of questions that cluster around the main question, do you love me? And then the second question, can I depend on you? Can I trust you? Will you keep your promises? Can I believe you? Are you safe? Are you reliable? And those two questions, without diving deep into attachment theory, those are the questions that human beings are always scanning each other, trying to get an answer to. And if the answer is yes to both of them, then if that's true between you and I, if I feel as though you genuinely care about me and that you're reliable and I can trust you, then th- then a sense of security is going to form between the two of us. I'll be able to depend on you and you'll be able to depend on me. And trust forms in that matrix, in, in that um, context. What happens, though, if a person can't answer the question, do you love me and can I depend on you with a yes, with a solid yes? Well, then insecurity creeps in. And if you think about the original relationships of, of primary caregivers, if the, if the answers are no, either uh, do you love me? No, I, I don't believe that you do. I've come to believe that you don't or that I, am, that I am unlovable in some way, and that I, perhaps I can't depend on you, if either of those are answered no over time um, in, in the thousands of interactions between little ones and parents as they grow up, then that becomes kind of a template for relationships. And we, and we bring those expectations 
into our contemporary relationships. We're always asking those questions and we, we might have expectations about how they're gonna get answered. And the thing that is um, really useful about this psychological way of thinking about people and interpersonal way of thinking about it is that we're also prone to bring this relational template into our relationship with God and to view God through the lens of our attachment behavior and our attachment expectations. So really, whatever patterns we've developed in our human relationships, starting from very early on, before we're even verbal, before we can even process what's going on with us, Mm -hmm. that those patterns get formed, and those patterns are what we bring into our relationship with God. So while we might think that it's about technique, that breaking through to intimacy in our relationship with God is about prayer techniques, instead, it really is about whether or not we're willing to look at our human relating patterns and to see how those might be impacting our relationship with God. And that that's, that's where the work needs to be done, not on just adopting another technique in our prayer life. Exactly. And, and that actually can become um, a, a useful perspective, a useful set of questions for uh, either someone in ministry who's struggling with their prayer life or perhaps they're ministering to someone else to help them to think that through. So if you've tried a number of different practices and a person still seems stuck and you you don't get the sense of them moving forward, then that can become one of those times when um, wondering if there might be something else going on, a little bit under the waterline, a little bit more in the emotional realm, um, in the horizontal realm as opposed to just the vertical realm. Of relatedness. Right. And so what's needed at that point then would be for them to do some psychological work around these early patterns as opposed to continuing mm-hmm. to try to push through with techniques. Um, and that's mm-hmm. that would be self-responsibility at that point, too, to say, you know what, I think there's something here in my relating patterns, going back to family of origin even perhaps, yeah. that I need to work on before continuing to try new techniques with prayer. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I could imagine, too, a pastor or a leader who's trying to teach other people about prayer, and they're going on and on about different techniques, but they're preaching to people who haven't dealt with with these psychological obstacles, so there's no way in the world that their teachings about prayer are going to be effective if, if these deeper psychological issues are not being acknowledged. You know, if there, if if some mm-hmm. of that work's not being mm-hmm. done, in in and through what's being offered in the church or in the community that they're a part of, um, you can just sort of see a pastor and his or her people working at cross purposes. If the pastor is teaching about techniques, but the people have psychological obstacles in place that prevent it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just want to add as a as a caveat to what you're saying, Ruth, that. Um, the the prerequisite for a really vital prayer life is not getting all your psychological stuff dealt with because that, that's a lifelong journey just like being formed into the image and like in likeness of uh, it being being formed is like but I am in agreement with you that if there is not a level of health and maturity psychologically um, it pr- practices can land on people in ways that aren't helpful. And it, and it behooves a Christian leader and a, and a person in a ministry role to, to be quite sensitive to that and to look for things that um, 
parishioners or people that they're ministering to stumble over. Another area that I think is a really interesting place of integration is the whole issue of control, because the spiritual mm-hmm. life and spiritual practices in general always have to do with giving up control to God, with surrender, with being able to abandon ourselves to God. And in fact, all the spiritual practices rightly practiced will always bring us up, you know, up to this issue of control and whether or not we're able and willing to give up control to God. So, and, and, you know, this, this need to control is, is a deeply psychological issue in some, in some places in our lives, correct? Absolutely true. And lurking right, right in close proximity to the need for control is pain. So the reason why people work so hard to control themselves or those around them or their feelings or whatever it is, their memories, whatever it happens to be, is that they're, they're trying to manage pain and perhaps avoid pain. And that, you know, the re- the reality is that human beings long for real comfort, but oftentimes we settle for relief. And that's, that's a lot of times what's going on around controlling behavior is that a person is trying to get relief or perhaps avoid uh, even more pain. Yeah, or maintain a fragile sense of peace, which isn't real peace, because you have to keep everything all in control for it, and it's very fragile. Exactly. Um, it's, it's not the deep peace that we would understand as Christians is available to yeah. us, but it's a fragile peace that's only accomplished by us being able to main, maintain external controls. Um, so, so that's another area where we, we work with the issue of control a lot in the transforming community mm-hmm. experience, but we know that that's got, that's got its psychological components. Um, another thing that I wonder about in terms of integration is this whole, this whole experience of drivenness that many pastors and Christian leaders, mm. especially these days, are very, very driven towards success, towards perfection, towards approval, towards um, maybe even some, some levels of notoriety. I mean, I think our culture right now is very prone to that as it has to do with um, mm. life within the church and what success looks like. But what I've noticed mm. you know, in myself and others is that oftentimes a drivenness, a kind of drivenness that can come from early family of origin types of experiences um, drives us in ministry just like it drives other kinds of successes, but we can spiritualize it. So there's this very thin veneer of spirituality over what is really just a basic kind of drivenness that goes all the way back to family of origin sorts of things. Does that resonate with you as being another area of overlap between our psychology and our spirituality? Yeah, 100%, Ruth. I'll I'll return back to my, my two attachment questions that I posed a few minutes ago. If a person answers the question, if, if what life has taught a person is that the answer to the question, do you love me? most of the time is no, that person is going to be anxious Mm -hmm. about connections with other people all the time. And some people try to control and manage that anxiety by killing themselves, um, trying to win the love and approval and affection of other people. So that's sometimes what's underneath the drivenness that you're describing. Yes, and there's a void. You know, there's an empty place where the human needs needs love needs security and it wasn't there and so we're still trying to fill it exactly by the same token you you probably know and i know people um for whom the question can i depend on you the answer that they've learned because of of their life experience is that no i can't depend on anyone it's all on me i've got to do everything 
I can't, I can't allow myself to lean into other people around me. It's kind of me and God, or maybe it's just me. And they become driven for a different set of reasons, mm-hmm. but they're nonetheless very, very driven. Right. And it's psychological in nature. And, and it, it has to be addressed or attended to at that level. Another area where we hit up against um, this integration of psychology and spirituality is where we actually begin the transforming community experience with the whole issue mm-hmm. and question of desire. You know, we, we talk about the fact that when Jesus wants to take the spiritual conversation further in the New Testament, oftentimes he would say something like, what do you want me to do for you? What are you seeking? What is it that you want? Do you really want to be made well? And for many, many people, it is really, really hard to be asked that question. The whole issue of desire is uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons that are, many of which are psychological in nature. So, for instance, you know, in our culture, we tend to sexualize the whole issue of desire so that people don't even know how to pay attention to it. And they're very nervous about human desire. They feel like desire is going to propel them down a path you know, that's dangerous for them or, or deceitful. Another place where we find people hit up against a psychological obstacle is the fact that when they were young and expressed desire, maybe they were shamed or maybe they were told they didn't deserve it or there was a profound kind of scarcity mentality or you shouldn't want that or things like that that are really early, these very early experiences of wanting and desiring and how was it that you were dealt with as a child around issues of wanting and longing and desire. And so even though we see Jesus asking that question and inviting us into that question, there's a psychological barrier there because of what we experienced early on. Is that, is that something that, you're, that, you, that resonates with you as a part of your experience in, in working with people psychologically? Yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, desire and, and fear are tethered together. There's no way to separate the two of them in this life. I believe in the in the the new heaven and the new earth. They'll be untethered finally. But ha- perhaps you've noticed this with yourself, and other people. I certainly see it in myself. That um, if I want something, if I if I become aware of my desire, my longings, shortly thereafter, as if there's a leash connecting the two, I'm mm-hmm. aware of anxiety. Yeah. If not straight up fear. Mm-hmm. And what is the nature of the anxiety and the fear in your experience? That, well, it could be any number of different things. It could be that uh, reality will say no mm-hmm. to the thing that I want. Yeah. And that that will, uh, that will be an, an, uh, a fresh injury, perhaps a poke mm-hmm. in an old familiar wound. That could be one of the things. It, it could be that um, the expression of, as you pointed out, the expression of desire was to punish. Yes. And so there's a fear that lurking close by is someone or something. And sadly, for some people, it might even be who they imagine God to be, right. just waiting to jump on them with both feet. Right. Or even a feeling of shame about, you know, you're bad 100%. for wanting that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think that's one of those primal anxieties that we try to avoid at all costs is a feeling of shame. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, shame is one of the most primal, most primitive anxieties. And shame essentially has to do, as I know you know, with, with the sense that there is something wrong with me. It isn't that I've done something wrong. That's guilt. It's that there's something terribly wrong with me. And we will avoid that in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And so this very simple thing called desire 
hits us, you know, you know, hits us up against all those very primal feelings and we're not even aware of it. I, I thought I so much appreciated in your teaching, Ruth, uh, about prayer, the, 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 the theology and the psychology of asking in prayer. And what an intimate thing that that is. I'd never really thought about it like that before, but boy, that really that really resonated with me. And I think it's very related to what we're talking about right now. Yes. And so it's all about intimacy, because usually asking takes place within intimate relationships. And so desire also faces us with our intimacy issues. You know, am I willing to be intimate enough with God or with others to actually ask for something that I want? Um, and yet, and yet that's basic, you know, God invites us to ask, but if our early human experiences shamed us or whatever, then that, that very, um, essential aspect of our life together with God is missing because we're trying to avoid those primal feelings. Yeah. So, well, I, I know we could go on and on and on about all the different ways and places in the journey where psychology and spirituality come together and that our transformational journey might even bring us up against some sort of a, you know, an obstacle or a growth edge in our lives that needs to be dealt with psychologically. But I want to, um, as we close our time together, I want to give us a little bit of time to talk about how do we know? Um, because Bob Mulholland goes on to say that there's, there may come a point in our spiritual pilgrimage when the Spirit of God awakens us to some area of deep psychological imbalance or brokenness within. And at those points, sound psychological therapy becomes an essential component to our spiritual journey. So, Bob, in your experience as a clinical psychologist, how would you help us as leaders to know when the thing that we're dealing with is something that should be attended to psychologically through therapy? How do we know it's a psychological obstacle to our growth toward wholeness in Christ? And it's something that needs to be dealt with at that level. Can you give us a few handles on how to, how to notice and how to, how to know whether that's what you've hit up against? Um, I, so I, I, would, uh, I would begin with this, that um, people who are, are serious Christ followers probably are going to lean into their spiritual practices for relief when they're experiencing pain or when they're suffering. So, and, and oftentimes, as you well know, Ruth, because you, you, um, you're, you're a midwife of people's souls as a director, um, it, it is enough to, uh, to, to lean into the spiritual practices that Christians have been, you know, um, doing for, for centuries. But when spiritual practices don't bring relief, and, and a person has tried them or tried a number of different things, that's an indicator. Mm-hmm. That's something to look at. When, when I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, when we're suffering, when we're in pain, and we find ourselves, rather than um, reaching out for real comfort, which generally speaking is in relationships, including counseling relationships, but when we settle for relief, we start doing things that we kind of recognize, you know, I, I am making this pain stop and uh, I'm beginning to uh, use methods that I know probably aren't good for me. Drinking a little bit too mm-hmm. much, um, spending a little bit too much time in front of screens, um, maybe taking it out on other people, whatever it happens to be. 
that's another indicator. That's a marker. And then as, as the, the pain becomes more severe, a person will begin to note that the wheels are really begin to start falling off of their life. Mm-hmm. They begin to feel overwhelmed with, with painful, if I could use a clinical word, painful symptoms mm-hmm. that, uh, that actually disrupt their functioning. And when I say disrupt their functioning, what I mean is thing, they begin to feel things, feel overwhelmed in ways that get in the way of um, the three main aspects of life, love, work, and play. Mm-hmm. So if a person is, um, that their pain leads, leads them to do things, have, um, they notice behavior that is getting in the, in the way of being able to do their job. So what, give us an example of that. Give us an example of what is a behavior that might get in the way of doing your job? Uh, pornography. And I mean, in an, in an addictive use of it, when it's taking, it's consuming so much time or any kind of addictive behavior that's taking so much time that a person isn't doing their job well. Well, let me just, uh, let me just press in a little bit more and to say, have you ever experienced, and do you ever have to call someone to an awareness that they might be using their spiritual practice though, practices though, in ways that are avoiding the deeper questions? Like you were talking about that, the fact that, you know, spiritual practices should be relieving on one level, but is there, are, is there ever a way in which people might use their spirituality or use their spiritual practices as a way of avoiding these deeper dynamics that need to be dealt, need to be dealt with psychologically? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sadly, there are aspects of many Christian subcultures that support that very thing. Yeah. So how do you know if that's happening? How do you know if you're using your spiritual practices as actually avoidance of this psychological work? Well, I think part of it is just naming it. So let, maybe maybe we could brainstorm just a few together. Um, so, for example, excessive God talk. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there are some people that, you know, uh, rather than talk about what's really going on with them, they know how to frame whatever's happening um, with, quote unquote, the right the right God language. Mm-hmm. Another, another aspect of that might be that um, all problems are framed in past tense. Well, I used to struggle with that, but yeah. praise God. <laughs> yes, I've had the victory. I've had the victory, <laughs> exactly. That, that can be, I mean, that can, obviously that can be true, but it could also be uh, a way not to actually name what's happening in the present. Mm-hmm. Right. Or another aspect that I've seen is people that might, they're, they're, they want to be a loving person, and so any kind of truth-telling or any kind of acknowledgments of harder realities are just something they can't do because they're over-spiritualizing our call to love, yes. which keeps them from actually talking about the hard things, which means relationships can't move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would be, you know, in, in a situation like that, I might I might challenge someone to say, you know, well, what about what about the, the role of truth in our mm. lives mm. of love with other people? Um, mm. Where would that take us as well? So, I um, I think that there's a fine line to find here in these things, and that I would I would imagine that part of your job, even as a therapist, would be at times to call that out and to say to someone, "Hey, I think there's a deeper work that needs to be done here. That's not going to be accomplished by just gritting your teeth and praying harder." And things like that. Um, so I was I didn't know how that looked in yeah, your own practice. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a delicate conversation to have. 
mm-hmm. um, because some people aren't aren't aware that they are using um, spiritual language or maybe even they're, that they're spiritualizing um, the problems that they're having. So it, it takes a kind of um, care, special care to navigate through and around that. Yeah. You, you know, I was thinking um, years ago, Dallas Willard um, wrote this magnificent chapter in which he named uh, what we're talking about, one aspect of what we're talking about, the Gospels of Sin Management. Oh, yes. I'm so glad you're mentioning that. And, and the essence of that, as I, from what I remember, what I took away from it is that he very perceptively sniffed out in, uh, in some Christian subcultures in, um, I think he was mostly focused on North American Christian subcultures, this, this um, practice of equating spiritual maturity with how well you, you hide your sin. Which, mm-hmm. as I, I th- it was really stunning to read that. I, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I think it's like 20 years ago they wrote the book or something like that. It was really stunning to read that. But the more I reflected on it, the more I think that that's, that's an accurate assessment for some. That in yeah. some way we're rewarded for how well we hide our sin. And not just our, our sinful behavior, but um, all, all aspects of it, our brokenness, that which is, yeah. that which is just not right on the inside. Right. And, you know, it goes without saying, but let's say it, that sin management is not the same thing as spiritual transformation. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. And so perhaps even in your work as a psychologist, there would be a sort of unveiling of that, you know, uh, an unveiling of the dynamic of managing sin rather than actually experiencing spiritual transformation. I would think that would be a part of the gift that you bring in your work is that you're helping people to get down under that for the very purpose of getting on a truer journey of spiritual transformation. Well, before we close, and of course we could go on, but I want to ask you, Bob, how how might you recommend that someone who is engaged in in a in a in a deeply spiritual practice and process of self-examination actually incorporate a little bit of this integration into their own spiritual lives and as they pay attention um, what helps us to notice what might be a a place of psychological brokenness so that we don't fall into this pattern of just glossing over it and over spiritualizing it what can we add to our spiritual practice that would help us to be in touch with these psychological dynamics do you have any ideas on that um, I'm not sure why um, blind spots form in this area, but but I, I mean I, I I am calling myself out as much as I am anyone else on this. Um, it's as if it's very hard for us to see these things by ourselves. And so um, one thing that a person might do is, if they're ready, to s- sincerely ask God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal to them what they need to know about themselves that may need healing. And so uh, a psalm like Psalm 139, in, in which the, the psalmist is asking the Lord to search them on, on the, at, at depth, and then to reveal, see if there's anything in me that is hurtful and destructive. That would be one thing. And then the other thing is um, other people um, with whom there is enough sense of trust and connection and safety to um, to dare to ask them if they see things that about my uh, that you see things, Ruth, about me that I might not be able to see about myself. 
because you might, if we're good friends, you might, you might have experienced the sharp edges of my brokenness, or perhaps you can see me uh, imploding on myself, becoming more depressed or whatever it is. And, uh, and, and so you might at some point hold a mirror up to me in a loving way and say, boy, I, I've noticed this about, about you. Are you okay? What's going on? Well, I really like the fact that you're taking it towards community, that, that there are some things we can't know completely without inviting others into the process. So maybe that'll be our next conversation, Bob. I'll ask you the question and you'll ask me the question and we'll see where it takes <laughs> us, right? If we're, if we're courageous, if we're brave, that might be our next spiritual conversation. We'll I'm see. Ready. Let's go. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Yes, I'm ready too, actually. So, and, and our relationship is safe enough to do that in, which is part of the point, isn't it? You have to be in safe relationships and community yes. to actually be able to allow each other to hold the mirror up like yeah. that um back to your back to your point about these early patterns you know is that um we have to have some relationships that feel safe enough for us to actually allow this kind of mirroring if you yes. will well i am really grateful for our conversation today it's just been very enriching and it inspires me to want to continue to deepen my own journey around these things and to let god and and others my friends um, point out those kinds of places as they see them in my own life do you have a, a last word for us bob before we close off just a heartfelt gratitude for the work that you're doing ruth um I, I have been the beneficiary of it, and I am an eyewitness of the impact of what you're doing in, in people's lives. And I'm grateful that we have formed a, a kind of um, complementary way of caring for people who are in ministry, because that's, that is, they are the ones that um, I'm always drawn to, and, uh, and, and my heart goes out to them, breaks for them, and cares for them. So I'm grateful for what you're doing. Well, um, that certainly goes both ways. And you can find out more about Bob's ministry on our show notes, his ministry with Alongside Ministry. It's a wonderful model that they have there for helping people who have been on the field, active in ministry, heal some of these aspects of life that need to be healed. And so go to the show notes, learn more about Bob's ministry. And I want to close with just a word, one last sentence from Bob Mulholland. We'll just uh, be, st we'll stop where we started. And he actually closes uh, his chapter where he talks about these things by saying that neither spiritual transformation nor psychological therapy are a substitute for the other, but they work together as a means of grace through which God conforms us to the image of Christ for the sake of others. And I love that phrase, that psychology mm. and spirituality work together as a means of grace through which God can conform us to the image of Christ. What a wonderful invitation and call today. Thanks, Bob. Amen. Thank you. On behalf of Ruth and the entire Transforming Center staff, thank you so much for listening. We're currently accepting applications for our next Transforming Community Spiritual Formation Experience for Christian Leaders. You can learn more by visiting transformingcenter.org TC. This podcast is a ministry of the Transforming Center and is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. If you've enjoyed Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast, please leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can also become a partner of the podcast and get exclusive benefits by visiting transformingcenter.org patron. Thanks so much for your support and for listening to Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership.